Can we use neuroscience and psychology to our advantage for self-defense? Tune in to find out only here on the People's Scientist Podcast. listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 115. It feels so good to be back doing the podcast. Thank you so much for letting me take a bit of time off from the show. I really needed the break. I switched gears for a little bit and needed to put some focus on my research and my family. And some of you have been asking what I was up to for the last couple of months. Well, I moved into a new apartment in Manhattan. I wrote a couple of very exciting grants that I hope will be funded. These grants were about trying to approach drug addiction from a completely new perspective. I hope that this new perspective will lead to more treatment options for individuals battling with drug addiction. That includes addiction to nicotine, alcohol, and opioids like fentanyl, the common prescription painkiller oxycodone, and others. Because I come from a different discipline of nutrition and physiology, then I ventured into behavioral neuroscience. I like to bring that different perspective to the table. I hope that my different approach will lead to some significant findings. Another exciting thing is that some of my work on nicotine addiction was invited for submission to a prestigious journal called Nature, so I was working on a rough draft of that work. This project has been about five years in the making, and I hope that once that work is published, I can dedicate a whole episode on my own research for all of you. Also, as I'm sure some of you listening can relate to, I hadn't seen my family for nearly two years since this pandemic began. I'm originally from Canada, but I work and live in New York City, so crossing the border and seeing my family during all this was impossible at times, or rather difficult and expensive. So I finally flew out to see them, and man, did I cry. It was as though all the emotions I'd felt in the last two years, the fear, the sadness, the joy, the excitement was felt all at once when I was in the arms of my family again. I was so grateful for everything in that visit. I feel like in the last two years, I had to become very independent, kind of keep my head down and grind and go through the motion, so to speak. And once I got back to Canada with my family, it was a huge realization of what my life used to be like. Even my family cooking me meals made me cry because I hadn't had anyone cook me a meal in years. So gratitude certainly is something that I've learned the last two years. How about you? Do you feel as though you've changed or learned something new about yourself in the last couple of years? I'd love to hear from you. You can message me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. So enough of me chatting away about what I've been up to the last couple of months. Let me jump into what I'm going to talk about on today's episode. Now, I wanted to cover the scientific literature on the neuroscience of self-defense. Now, I feel living in New York City, I've certainly had to become more aware of my surroundings and to be more defensive, as I have unfortunately experienced a few incidents here in the last few years. 
And it got me thinking, okay, what is in my toolbox? What can I use to help keep myself and others safe? Well, psychology and neuroscience are some of my tools, so I wanted to see how we could use our intelligence to our advantage. And I hope this episode will intrigue you, give you something to ponder, and perhaps provide some useful information for all of us. So, as we always do, how about we start off with some core takeaways. Today I will be speaking about the neuroscience and psychology of self-defense in order to deter violence or to avoid being accosted. There's not too much research on this topic, surprisingly, but I was able to find some interesting things or pull from similar areas. So firstly, we can use uncertainty to our advantage. As instinctually, we humans tend to feel uneasy and want to avoid unpredictable people or situations. Number two, the likelihood of being caught is a far greater deterrent than the severity of a potential punishment. So we can give off an impression that if someone were to approach us, we would not be an easy target, that we would draw attention, enhance the likelihood of being caught, and have a high chance of this person therefore having a punishment. And I also give some suggestions for that in this episode. The third thing I bring about is talking about scenario training, as this is used in police academies and the military, in order to prevent us from freezing up in situations and to have a known plan of action in likely scenarios. I also speak of particular brain regions involved in these emotions and how they play a role in our ability to deter being attacked. So now, without further ado, let's get into those scientific details. So self-defense can be considered in different contexts, but today I'm going to focus mostly on the scenario of, let's say we are out walking down the street. How can we use psychology or neuroscience to our advantage in order to deter violence being afflicted upon us? How can we prevent us from becoming a target? One may also think of self-defense in the context of defensiveness, like if someone says something to us that strikes a chord or upsets us and how we can become a bit aggressive or defensive. That will be a topic for a different episode. Today, I'm going to speak about self-defense in the context of safety. Now, unfortunately, there's not much direct research on any of this that I could find. I will share with you the few studies that I did find and how I pulled from studies in different contexts and tried my best to extrapolate or generalize the data to self-defense. So today's episode may seem a bit more descriptive or theoretical than my usual highly evidenced episodes, but nonetheless, I will share with you what I did come across. Now, when I trained in karate, I remember being told this statement that always stuck with me. And they said that the best self-defense is not putting ourselves in a situation where we have to defend ourselves, that avoiding the situation altogether is our best bet. So in other words, prevention, deterrence will be our greatest tool. So can we use psychology and neuroscience to understand how we may prevent ourselves from being a target? Yes, we hope so. One thing I came across that might be helpful is the notion that humans are instinctually created to fear uncertainty. Uncertainty of something or uncertainty of how someone may act is strongly linked to fear and avoidance of the situation or or avoiding an unpredictable person. Uncertainty is a big predictor of fear. In some scenarios, uncertainty is the greatest factor in inducing fear in people. 
So if we can create an air of uncertainty, unpredictability about us, this may lead individuals to avoid us in these unsafe situations. So let me give an example. At night, when it is dark, we might tend to feel more on edge, uneasy, fearful even, as compared to when in the daylight. Why? Because the darkness creates uncertainty. We can't see as well. Things or people may be hiding in the shadows. Another example, I was working out at the gym the other day and someone near me was exercising with a face mask and their hoodie up. And for some reason, it left me feeling on edge and I wasn't entirely sure why. I was thinking like, why was someone wearing a thick sweater with their hoodie up while working out at the gym? This was unusual and left an air of uncertainty. Like, who is this person? What do they look like? Why are they wearing a sweater while exercising? Have you ever had a scenario like this happen? If someone acted in a way that was out of the ordinary or gave an air of uncertainty, how did it make you feel? I also want to share a little social experiment of my own. Now, keep in mind, this is just a sample size of one. I'm not saying for you to do this, but I just wanted to share an interesting experience and observation of mine. Now, when I walk around the city, I tend to have a lot of people talk to me, make comments to me, accost me even, unfortunately. When I talk to my other friends about this, a couple of my friends shared similar experiences. But for the most part, many of my friends did not, not to the extent that I've experienced. So it got me wondering, why am I targeted when I walk around the city? Why do people like to interact with me, whether that be positively or negatively? You know, is it the way I dress? Is it my demeanor, the speed I walk, how I look? Let me portray how I walk around the city, though. I walk very quickly. I look straight ahead and with purpose. So personally, I don't think how I walk would attract attention or incite someone to approach me. In fact, when I was walking really quickly one day to work, I had someone have to run alongside of me to keep up with me in order to talk to me when they were trying to get my attention. So even if I walk quickly and give off the message I am busy, this doesn't seem to be a deterrence for me. Then I dressed in very baggy clothing. That didn't seem to matter much or make a difference. Then I bought these big over-the-ear headphones to insinuate that I can't hear people around me. Despite this, people still try to talk to me. You know, the only thing that seemed to make a big difference is if I wear a hoodie. A sweater that has a hood attached to it, and I put that hood up over my hair, which also would partially cover my face from the side too. Out of all the approaches that I tried, this was the one that worked the best. And that got me thinking, what is it about wearing a hoodie that caused people to not approach me? And I think, again, it comes back to the psychology of uncertainty. For some reason, when there is an air of uncertainty, if we can't see something about someone, that for some reason it puts us on edge or gives us a feeling of, of uneasiness. And that seems to just be intrinsically linked to our instincts. So if we in some way can portray a level of uncertainty to those around us, it may put a potential attacker on edge. It may keep them wondering what we are capable of, who we are, if we're hiding anything, and thus may avoid interacting with us. So I was trying to brainstorm if we felt unsafe in a situation, like let's say we're walking home at, walking home at night alone, how can we give this air of uncertainty to avoid someone from attacking us? And I thought, well, putting up our hood, I suppose could achieve that, as I mentioned it personally worked for me. Perhaps crossing the street back and forth a few times would seem odd to someone. Walking in an irregular pattern, 
shaking one's hands outward with an object in her hand, like our keys, for example. And I, I know this may sound silly, this erratic kind of unpredictable behavior of crossing the street and moving your hands in a weird way, but I have spoken to police officers and martial artists in preparation for this episode, and they do agree that giving an air of uncertainty or odd behavior can be a good deterrent, preventing someone from potentially attacking us. Unpredictability may make people feel uncomfortable. Now let's talk about the neuroscience of this. Why does uncertainty make us feel uncomfortable? Well, Shankman in Neuro Report in 2014 conducted an fMRI study in unpredictable aversiveness, meaning the anxiety, the negative feelings associated with not knowing what is going to happen or what is going on. Now, you know, I often love to bring up fMRI studies because I think they are very powerful research in neuroscience. fMRI stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It can study the flow of blood in the brain. And if the blood increases to a certain brain region, we believe that brain region is being recruited to influence our behavior or how our body functions. And if we can understand what brain regions are involved in certain behaviors, this now gives us a target and therefore a better understanding of human behavior. Now, in this study, they noted that the anterior insula of the brain was important in this response and was associated with the feelings of anxiety around uncertainty. Now, this is interesting because the anterior insula has been implicated in enteroception. Now, enteroception is a really cool concept. Essentially, it is our ability to detect what we are feeling on the inside. It's a cool concept that part of our brain is responsible for detecting what we are feeling, which is essentially the result of our brain itself. So the anterior insula is like the sensor of the brain, so to speak. For example, the anterior insula is implicated in our ability to detect thirst, hunger, a full bladder, but also our ability to detect our emotions like craving, disgust, uneasiness, etc. So it is really fascinating to me that this same brain region that tells us how we feel is implicated in our anxiety of uncertainty when we feel uneasy. You know how sometimes we have an uneasy feeling about a situation that we can't quite explain why, we just do. Like for example, our hair standing on ed, standing on end? I think that's the saying, our hair is standing up anyway. Or just feeling uncomfortable in a situation, like we are fearful. It appears that the anterior insula plays an important role in that response. Very cool. So what does this mean or what can we translate that to? Well, it means that if someone has a brain injury to this region from an accident or a stroke where that part of the brain region has been injured, then they may lack an ability for interoception or to sense these inward feelings. They may have a dysfunctional ability to be able to respond to uncertainty or uneasiness, for example. How about another cool neuroscience study? Crane and authors in 2006 in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry published another fMRI study on uncertainty and decision-making. So in this paper published by Crane and colleagues, 12 healthy adults and 12 healthy teenagers completed a decision-making task with conditions of varied uncertainty while fMRI scans of their brain were performed. Now, the participants also completed measures of worry and uncertainty and a questionnaire about their levels of anxiety during this task. The scientists realized that during the decision-making tasks when uncertainty was exhibited, the region of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex was recruited and therefore likely important in these scenarios. So how is this finding useful? How does knowing that the anterior cingulate cortex plays a role in decision-making and uncertainty help us? 
Well, for example, Pittenger in 2006 in the journal Primary Psychiatry implicated the importance of the same brain region in individuals living with obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. They found that there may be too much or too little glutamate in the anterior cingulate cortex in individuals diagnosed with OCD. So does this mean then that individuals battling with OCD may have a harder time with error prediction, uncertainty of situations, and fear associated with this? Well, OCD at its core is unfortunately hallmarked by uncertainty and doubt, and subsequently fear or anxiety associated with this doubt. Thus, individuals with OCD may have a difficult time with predicting the certainty of situations. Therefore, it could be the root cause to their fear and anxiety. Storch in 2010, in the Journal of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology, wrote of how children living with OCD may sadly be more likely to become targets and victims of bullying and abuse. Now, why this is, is likely multifaceted and not yet well understood. But perhaps in individuals living with OCD, extra care can be taken to protect them from becoming victimized, helping them assess situations more accurately and to avoid unsafe situations. Now, this is why I love neuroscience. It helps us connect so many things together in order to make humans and society better. Who would have thought that OCD could be connected to one's likelihood for being a target for bullying or violence? Well, fMRI studies pinpointing the anterior cingulate cortex of the brain gave us this connection. And hopefully now, this can be brought to the attention of clinicians or to individuals battling with OCD in order to make their life better and safer. Now that we have talked about creating an air of uncertainty and how that can put someone on edge and therefore avoid the situation because of the recruitment of the anterior insula and anterior cingulate cortex, let's talk about another strategy. There's also the psychology of deterrence to keep in mind. Now, Jin wrote in 2013 in the journal Crime and Justice how certain approaches are more effective for deterring crime and violence. According to Najin, the certainty of punishment is far more effective as a deterrent than the severity of punishment. So what does that mean? Regardless of the severity of the punishment, the simple act of being caught is a huge deterrent. We can also look at this as the certainty of apprehension. How likely is an approacher likely to be apprehensive toward us? Not certain about us. So can we use this information to our advantage? Potentially, yes. An attacker may be less likely to approach us if we appear as though we might draw attention, increasing the chances of them being caught or increasing the chances of a negative outcome. So if we look like we are likely to see the attacker oncoming, if we are likely to fight, to be loud, to draw attention, one is likely to avoid us. So if we walk with confidence, with purpose, if we look around, are aware of our environment, keeping our attention on point, if we make ourselves perhaps appear larger or stronger with our shoulders back or head held high, confident, it is possible that this may increase the portrayal of someone that an attacker would not want to approach. This is playing on the fact that they want to avoid being caught, the strongest deterrent. Now, if you sat down and watched people pass by, asking yourself who you think an attacker would hone in on, naturally, instinctually, as, as humans, we may choose someone not paying attention to what is going around them. Someone with their head down, someone distracted, someone appearing small with shoulders hunched forward, someone looking unconfident. Let's take that human instinctual response and realize that if we can do the opposite, this might be of benefit to our safety. 
Now, how about another neuroscience or psychological approach to enhance our self-defense? Scenario training is also a very interesting technique used in law enforcement and the military. Scenario training means to acknowledge that a situation may occur, and to, one, test to see how we would react in that scenario, and two, to train us in how to properly respond. Scenario training can hopefully reduce the shock or surprise that we may have when an event occurs, because we've already acknowledged it as a possibility. That in itself is very powerful, to acknowledge the possibility that something can occur. Then second, to help us have a go-to strategy in these scenarios. I think scenario training could be useful in so many different situations, like in sports psychology and in everyday life for all of us. And I would love to dedicate an entire episode to the neuroscience and psychology of scenario training. And I actually have some plans to bring on a very special guest expert for this topic. So make sure to stay tuned for future episodes on this one. But briefly, considering our safety and the possibility of someone approaching us is in itself powerful, the awareness of the possibility. Worth in 2011 in the journal Police Practice and Research detailed how scenario training in law enforcement helps to prepare police officers for a wide array of different situations. The scenario training helps prepare them on how to respond, to not be surprised so they are less likely to respond with frozen shock, but rather to be at the ready to respond to the situation. For example, if we notice someone is following us home, instead of going home, we could go to a public place with people like a grocery store or head to a nearby police district. Do you know where the nearby police station or fire station is in your area? Perhaps it's good knowledge to have. That way, if you ever feel uneasy, if you ever feel like someone's following you home, you can head in that direction toward the police station or the fire station. Now, in this example of a scenario training, we can acknowledge that being followed is a possibility and that we know how we can respond instead of us hesitating in that moment, not knowing what to do. How about another example? How about if someone actually gets to the point where they grab us from behind and we might freeze, we might not know what to do. But if in your mind you've told yourself, if I ever get to that point where someone comes from behind and grabs me, this is what I do. And I personally love jujitsu, this martial arts, for this. Jujitsu utilizes our intelligence to have self-defense. Intelligence is the equalizer against someone much stronger or faster than us. This is why I really like jujitsu. I've taken a couple classes at the Gracie Jujitsu Dojo here in New York City, and they train people to deal with real-world situations, which I think is great. They also have super great YouTube tutorials, and it's called uh, Gracie Breakdown on YouTube if you want to take a look at them. And I'll also put the link in the description box to this episode if you want to check their channel out. Now, one thing I took from the jiu-jitsu classes is that our natural inclination, if someone grabs us, is to pull away, to move our bodies far away as possible from the attacker. However, in jiu-jitsu, they teach that our strength comes from pulling the attacker in toward us, at this limits the attacker's range of motion and thus their strength and can put the power into our hands. So think about jujitsu and even having a couple go-to moves you've practiced and that could be very beneficial and empowering in regard to our self-defense. This, so to speak, is scenario training. Now everyone's living situation is different, but considering the possibilities to ensure our safety can be an essential exercise. Now with every function, there can be a dysfunction. To every physiology, there is a pathophysiology. What I mean is using these tactics of self-defense may be useful for us, but also 
Overthinking or ruminating on them may also lead to anxiety or paranoia. So it is also important to bear in mind the realistic situations, to consider a plan of action, and that is it, to not ruminate on these scenarios to cause undue anxiety. The fact that you've prepared yourself and how to respond to the situation would hopefully reduce any anxiety related to it. So that is a wrap, my people, scientist army. This week's episode, episode 115 on the neuroscience of self-defense. Now, there isn't a whole lot of research on this topic, but I think I was able to pull together a few interesting studies and points that perhaps can give us something to think about. For example, utilizing uncertainty to our advantage. If we feel unsafe in a situation, we may be able to create an air of uncertainty about ourselves by, for example, covering our head with a hat or hood, locking in an unusual pattern, moving our arms strangely, etc., This plays on our instincts to avoid the uncertainty or unpredictability of behavior. So an attacker may avoid someone with this unpredictable behavior. We can also use the science of deterrence to our benefit. The likelihood of being caught is a far better deterrent than the severity of the punishment. So we can look like we wouldn't be an easy target. That if we were targeted, we would make it likely that they would get caught or bring attention to the situation. So if we look like we are paying attention to our surroundings, our head held high, looking around, shoulders back with an air of confidence, this might help deter someone. Lastly, we can consider the psychology of scenario training used in the police academy and military, taking a moment to consider a likely scenario based on our living situation, then to think about our best mode of action to avoid the situation like walking to the nearest police precinct or knowing certain jujitsu moves if attacked. Now, in regard to the neuroscience, the anterior insula and the anterior cingulate cortex seem to play a role in our ability to sense our uneasiness and to respond to uncertainty. This is really interesting and gives us a target to understand what part of our brain controls this response. And so, for example, if this brain region is damaged from a traumatic brain injury or stroke or involved in another health condition, then perhaps our ability to assess uncertainty of a situation and the fear or anxiety associated with it may be heightened or reduced. So I hope that this episode was interesting for all of you. I know I found it really intriguing and useful for me personally. As I mentioned in the last episode, I will plan to do more posting on social media and trade for a podcast episode. So I would like to try out doing a podcast episode every two weeks for now but posting more tidbits of information on the week's topic to social media over that two-week period. Who knows, I might go back to weekly episode come the new year, but let's try this out for now and see how it goes. But thank you for being patient with me as I try new things and for sticking along as part of the People Scientist Army. If you by chance want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, I have my Venmo and Patreon account in the description box to the show. I don't make any money on the podcast. I do it because I love science and researching and I want to share my findings with all of you in the hopes that if I can empower or intrigue at least just one of you, then I'm a very happy girl. So I hope you all have an amazing week. If you are in the United States, then I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week. And I will meet you back here for another episode very soon on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. 
Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.